Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Radicals and Conversation, a monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. There are a few subjects more personal and more political than sex. Sex education, as it's taught in school, has always been a source of controversy and amongst the pupils subjected to it, often a great deal of embarrassment as well. But while national contexts may differ, it's perhaps the inadequacy of sex education that emerges as its most defining trait. It's often heteronormative in its assumptions, overly biological in approach. Many young people emerge from formal sex education, knowing how to put a condom on a banana, but without any understanding of what constitutes consent or what a healthy relationship looks like. In March 2017, the UK government ruled that by September 2020, sex and relationship education will be compulsory in the UK. But big question marks remain over what it will look like in practice. I'm Chris Brown, and joining me today to discuss how sex education could and should be improved are Natalie Fines, author of the new book Behind Closed Doors, Sex Education Transformed, Lydia Hughes, a trade union organiser, and Bryony Walker, a social justice activist involved in the Level Up campaign to change the UK curriculum around consent. So thanks to you all very much for coming on the show. I guess normally when we talk about sex education, we usually mean formal sex education, something that's taught in school. Um, and given the forthcoming changes to the curriculum here in the UK, I guess that's something we'll spend a good amount of time in the conversation talking about. But People, when they open your book, Natalie, um, they'll quickly realise that it's not been written for secondary school aged children, um, but rather, as you put it, for a group of people who are considered beyond the age where sex education is needed. If Me Too has taught us anything, it's that sex education must be lifelong. And I think that's really worth highlighting because clearly it's not just young people in school who need a radical sex ed programme, uh, but wider society too. And when you skim through the contents of the book, Uh, you kind of realise just how far-reaching a subject this is. So you talk about gender identity, masculinity, body image, consent, sexual violence, contraception, virginity, porn, sex work, you know, a great deal besides. So there's lots to talk about. But perhaps a sensible place to start is with the history of sex education, which is something that you talk about in the introduction of the book. And I think the origins of state sex education in the UK are quite interesting, so I'd be interested to hear more about that. One of the things about the book or one of the intentions for me was to put sex education as a topic itself on the table. So not just thinking about what the content is of a sex education, but how the topic itself has been taught and the approach towards it. I think in general, we have this idea in the West that like education has been this thing of progress. So we've gone from kind of barbarism to now in full enlightenment. And when you look at the history of sex education, it's kind of depending on what your idea of progress is, It's kind of the opposite. The way that we understand sex education today is generally taught with a lot of shame and fear and stigma and, as you said, embarrassment and awkwardness. But in other communities and other societies around the world, historically, it's been part of everyday life. So in, I mean, it's become a bit of a thing to talk about India, but in India, sex education was part of people's upbringing. So you would go into your place of worship and there's this quite famous statue um, in India, which is thousands of years old, and there's kind of literally sculptures of people having sex all around you in um, different positions with different people in groups on their own uh, even with animals and this was like a place for worship as well as it was a place for learning and it wasn't until kind of very deeply conservative religious movements Christianity but also Islam that um, these kinds of sexual practices which were much more tolerant of difference and open to different kinds of sexuality that wasn't so heteronormative 
that we found this kind of leveling out that there's just this sense that there's only one way to express yourself sexually. So the first like major global sex education program was actually brought about by the church alongside European imperialists as they colonized the majority of the world. So they set up churches around um, the global south and colonized countries. And in these churches, people would come and be taught, you know, what good in inverted commas sex actually is. And there was this huge kind of racialized undertones to it because there was this assumption that colonized subjects were in some way kind of savage and barbarous and they needed to be civilized. And it was through teaching about a particular kind of sexuality that they were considered to be so-called civilized. But back in the UK, it wasn't really until the end of World War I that we had like the first proper kind of sex education programs. And this was implemented through fear. So in World War I, there was, I think at one point, one in five British troops had an STD. Like when you read accounts from the time, I think it was probably because it was such a wide, you know, death rate, so much mortality, that people were just like, you know, YOLO. <laughs> Why should I not? Why not if, if I'm going to die when I go over the front tomorrow? So lots of sex workers would be kind of milling around in the front. So when troops came back, lots of them were affected by STDs. And the British government and the other kind of allied forces governments were really worried about this. And they worried about what this meant in terms of kind of morality. So they implemented the first sex education programs where they'd hand out posters to soldiers as they came back from the war, which said, you know, this is how you practice safe sex. This is like how you catch STDs. So it was this huge education kick. And yeah, there were also all these posters that were put up around the streets of the UK, which basically had pictures of women looking kind of not wearing many clothes, mm. looking quite seductive, They're saying things like, you know, she might look really pretty, but beware, she's probably got something. <laughs> um, sex positive. <laughs> so it's this huge shame and fear, and it's the sex education programs were first brought in, I think, as an attempt to like control populations mm. and assert this very narrow understanding of what sexuality and sexual practice is. Mm. I thought it was quite interesting that the first kind of sex education in, the, in that sense was kind of aimed at adults or aimed at soldiers, yeah. you know, rather than in the the classroom, which is kind of how we where we most associate it now. Loads of kids weren't going to school at that time. Mm. So it was until much later on that they would start talking to children about sexuality. But I think there's always been a fear around the way we talk to young people about sex and sexuality. And some of it's for good reason, some of it's for kind of safeguarding reasons. And also sex education should obviously be age appropriate. Mm. But um, it has something to do with this association between what it means to be innocent and what it means to be a child and what it means to be a young person. Mm. Like sex is seen as this thing as corrupting and is seen as this thing that's perverted. Mm. Which is a very patriarchal idea as well. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that sex education programmes, as you've kind of said, tend to reflect the politics and the morality of the time. But how has that been manifested more recently? I mean, you mentioned the First World War, but more recently than that in formal sex education. We had Dan Glass on this uh, show a couple of months ago and he was talking about the fact that when he was at school, it was illegal to promote homosexuality and so mm. on. So that clearly was a reflection of the government's own position on that. Yeah, I mean, when the first kind of major sex education programmes of kind of modern history came in, it was kind of on the condition that it would be about promoting family values. And I think it was in the late 80s and Margaret Thatcher implemented Section 28, which basically said that it was illegal for local councils to, quote, promote homosexual lifestyles. 
um, which basically applied to secondary schools and schools as well. So until 2003, when the law was undone by Labour, mm. which was really quite recently, actually, it was technically illegal for schools to teach about homosexuality. In the 90s, there was another big kind of kick or sex education push. And that was in response to this fear around teen pregnancies, which was hugely classist, sexist, misogynist mm. uh, representation of mostly working class women who it was seen as kind of a burden on society that they would dare basically procreate. It's huge kind of eugenicist kind of undertones to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah. that was the kind of sex education that I had. Like it was laced with fear, it was laced with shame mm. and prevention basically. Mm. I don't think it's the same for I had to call my mum last night (laughs) and it all came flooding back to me as soon as she mentioned it. There was one video about robots. They couldn't quite, they weren't enlightened enough. (laughs) What? And there was a video about robots having sex. It wasn't Robot Wars. (laughs) Um, And there was another video which is purely anatomical. Um, And you had a family and they were naked. And then one by one they walked down a corridor in their nakedness and it would pause and it would show you the inside of their body and what they had and all of this. But it was nothing to do with relationships, power, coercion, all these things you talk about in the book. And these are things that I felt so unprepared for. When I went into the workplace and all of a sudden I was getting, you know, people hitting on you or people making comments, I didn't even know that was wrong or I didn't even know how to respond to that. I remember working in a restaurant And a man told me, oh, you know, when we're not here, when you're not here, sorry, uh, we all talk about how great your bum is. And I'd never even, and I didn't even know how to respond. And I actually felt like grateful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, great. I've learned about a bum in this like naked (laughs) sex education video. Um, There was Mm. nothing about how wrong that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My experience of sex education, we had one lesson we had the typical banana on a condom. And when I was kind of getting together the campaign for the more recent changes to the curriculum, I asked my nan and my young, one of my younger sisters, who's 14, what their sex education lessons were like. And they'd had exactly the same. And I was like, what? We're almost spanning like 100 years of the same lessons. <laughs> yeah, so that was woeful. I remember like some kids in my classes in my class had put some names in the hat. You were allowed to ask anonymous questions and they'd ask things like, what's a snowball and what's a spit roast and like all kinds of wild things that they'd seen on porn. But I think that speaks to the fact that what we discuss in the classroom and it's very like scientific, like out of date. I mean, I've never put a condom on a banana since. (laughs) (laughs) It's like what kids are experiencing and already being exposed to in terms of sex, in terms of what they've seen on the internet, and this we're talking about 15 years ago, so it's very much a changed situation now. What their teachers and what the adults are prepared to talk about is so different from what kids and young people are experiencing and what they also need. Um, Also, I would say that in the context of being myself a childhood survivor of abuse and sexual violence... I think there is a really serious need for sex education to be comprehensive, to be courageous and to be suitable for all different types of kids, not just ones that come from happy families that we're assuming have good influences when it 
comes to talk about consent, when it comes to talking about LGBT, etc., etc., because not all kids are coming from that. And so, therefore, if adults they can respect or trust in some ways aren't leaning into that conversation, that leads to exactly as you're saying, all this kind of you're led by then what, especially as women, what you are told your sexuality is you know speaking with many of my girlfriends and it takes a really long time for you to unpick that to uncondition what you have learned because there was a dearth of education I even had my little sister who's 15 now call me up um two nights ago and she was like I need to ask your advice because one of her girlfriends in terms of her schoolmates that she plays rugby with had realized that she started having feelings for her friends um, who's also a girl, and she didn't know how to deal with these feelings. They come from a small village. Like, the LGBT curriculum is pretty woeful from what I've heard from my sis. And, you know, her friend didn't really know how to say that. She was, like, almost already that shame had been inbuilt. Like, this is different than saying, I fancy a boy. How do I go about it? And I just love to see schools and communities as you say because it's not just school where people should get their education from leaning into this so that all kids get a more rounded education Mm. so i mean the government's promised changes to how it approaches sex and relationship education from next year what are the substantive differences do we know yet what they're actually planning well okay so i think like when i first saw their draft curriculum it looked more of the same Family values. What are family values? Family looks different for all of us. What I was, we were reading in between the lines of that was you kind of nuclear, hetero, middle class family. That's what sex should look like. The rest, nah. They were trying to make LGBT optional still. So it's almost like the positive changes that have been won over the years, they're almost wearing back on because if you make it optional, Whilst teachers are saying as well, we need your help on this because they might not be from LGBT communities. They might not have the words to talk about domestic violence, child abuse or even, you know, positive sex and love. They need that support as well. So the government has now made the changes, but we're yet to see how they'll be changing the curriculum to make it compulsory to talk about LGBT and consent. However, I still think there is a big gap between what young people are experiencing today and the kind of sexuality that they're or sex and images etc they've been exposed to and what adults and teachers are prepared to talk about and what the government thinks is moral or good or you know whatever that is i mean there's a huge question as well around funding yeah like teachers need to be trained to do this stuff and that is hugely expensive and also a lot of young people don't really feel that comfortable talking to their teachers about, mm. you know, stuff that they see on porn, which is totally <laughs> fair enough. I still wouldn't. I still would not. You know, there's a lot of people that I would not want to talk to about this stuff. Um, and there's ways you can get around it. Like, you know, you can write stuff down and you yeah. can put it in boxes and you can be anonymous. But really what it requires is external people to come in often yeah. to talk about some of the yeah. more like difficult subjects and really well-trained people. Mm. Um, and that's a funding issue. Mm. And... Again, that like you're talking about gaps between expectation and what the reality is going to be. Yeah. And teachers I've spoken to have said, this is great. And these are progressive teachers that want to be talking about LGBT yeah. rights and consent and all these other issues. But they're like, where's the money going to come from? Yeah. Like, we're already strapped for cash. We already don't have the resources to look after the kids in the way we want to. Because currently mm. they're going to have to make the changes to, you know, the new lesson plans, the new curriculum, etc. themselves, without being specialists in yeah. this work, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. 
I think we've seen that through the consent classes we've given together, Natalie. We do them for free. Mm. We come into schools and teach young people about consent. And they love to learn. And they love to talk about um, sex and relationships with someone from outside the school. And they jump at the opportunity to have their views heard and voice their opinions about these issues. But we do give that for free. Right. That is something we do from our own time. And wow. it's just not scalable on that level. Yeah. And we need to be looking at massive investment in these kind of programmes. Agreed. It was really interesting reading the book because obviously it's filled with a lot of quite shocking statistics. Um, and I guess the section on rape culture and consent was particularly shocking. So there's a survey in that that you talk about where there was, I think, a thousand 18 to 25 year olds questioned. And I think it was 60% of the respondents didn't think that a partner crying during sex was indicative of like non-consent. You've both been doing these kind of workshops in schools. Is that level of... I guess, ignorance or confusion around consent quite typical with what you found? So we've, I think because of like Me Too and because conversations since I was at school have, like they have progressed and they are better. Mm. So they all know what consent is. I really do not think when I was 16 I knew what consent was. Really, I really do not think until I was probably at university (laughs) I knew what consent was. So they do know what consent is and they've all seen this video which is I think came out of an Australian university which is about the TV video. video. (laughs) And it's really good. It's like very good. It's consent 101. Adults should watch it. But it's kind of, it doesn't, in my opinion, and maybe you feel differently from having shown it to the kids, it just does not go far enough. What is the it, video actually? Sorry. So it's um, it's like a stick drawing animated video of two people mm. and one of them has a cup of tea and they're saying to the other person, do you want to drink this cup of tea? And the other person's like, no. And then the voiceover says, well, you know, this person said no, they don't want a cup of tea. So obviously you're not going to give them a cup of tea. You're not going to kind of force them to have mm. a cup of tea. And then there's another scene where they're asleep and they're like, you wouldn't force them to have a cup of tea if they're asleep. And all of these situations, so the tea is supposed to represent sex. Um, it's an active consent. thing. It's an act. You have to yeah. actively and actively give consent. Yeah. Um, and I think um, yeah. I would say as well, like the confusion around consent or the lack of education around it. We see how this is being debated in courts at the moment in terms of working things out post Me Too. And we also see when we look at the statistics of the number of cases that have been dropped by the Criminal Prosecution Service when it comes to rape, when it comes to sexual assault, when it comes to these tricky things, they are dropping these cases. They're training that the Centre for Women's Justice and and Violence Against Women Coalition have exposed and are taking them to the court at the moment because they don't believe that juries will believe people based on these misconceptions around consent. So we have victims and survivors of really extreme violence happening and because juries wouldn't believe them or that is the belief because of these myths etc around consent that is then playing back into this system of violence and that's why you know changing it with young people but also adults Mm. we've got to have we've got to lean into that you know because it has real impact on people's lives that's why I wish the tea analogy went so much further. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, you say this in your book, Nat, about yes means yes, no means no, but you're just missing that crucial step of mm. how you can get to a yes. And just because you get a yes, it doesn't mean that's consensual. And that's what I feel was so damaging 
maybe in my sex education or in throughout my time at university was that was the phrase. Yes means yes, no means no would be said again and again. But there was no understanding of, you know, what someone can do to you to get that yes or mm. what kind of state you can be in to mm. get that yes or kind of what kind of coercion can go on behind that. So the tea thing really irks me. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no analysis of power, is there? Yes. No. And yeah. I think to really understand, like, these topics and to understand what consent is all about you have to understand what power dynamics exist <clears throat> in interpersonal relationships yeah i mean gender is like the obvious one but it doesn't stop so at gender there's so many there's there's power dynamics that affect your identity gender class race etc but there's other kinds of power like how much money have you got mm. do you speak you know the same language what's your immigration status are you how much sexually ex- housing yeah housing totally. how sexually experienced are you you know there's yeah. all these different power dynamics yeah. that can actually make it really difficult to say no. And I suppose, like, bringing it back to gender, like, as women or people who socialise as women, you're taught that it's your job to care and to give. Mm. And that can be, I think, when it comes to consent, a real confusion because it can be really difficult to say no. Mm. And for men, or people who socialise as men, there's an aspect of what we understand as masculinity to be about kind of sexual entitlement and being the dominant sexual person. So we have all of these like romantic and sexual scripts that exist everywhere and not just in the classroom, but like in film and music and all mm. our lives, which we need to smash. <laughs> <laughs> Let's smash them. <laughs> mm. I mean, I think one of those enduring kind of myths is that sexual violence as perpetrated by men is about sexual gratification when it is really as much or more about power and the assertion of that. I mean, even like the UN, when they have their definition of um, sexual violence, they say that it's about a power relation and it's about control and mm. domination. Mm. Just to take it back quickly to, um, I guess, classroom sex education, because it is a controversial thing. And like one thing that happened in the UK this year was in the Parkfield Community School right in Birmingham, where there were protests by parents against its no outsiders lessons, which were supposed to be relationships lessons intended to promote tolerance and understanding about different races, genders, um, gender identities, sexual orientations. And the backlash from some parents demonstrates just how controversial relationship education can be. So how do you navigate that? I think especially because the way that one was portrayed in the media was that all the parents were from a Muslim community and so on. And actually, I think, you know, if you look throughout history, you see, especially recent history, you see LGBT sort of inclusivity and positivity being instrumentalized to kind of further an Islamophobic agenda. Mm. So, yeah, just interested to get your thoughts on how you kind of navigate that kind of a situation where there are attempts by a school to put forward a, a better, more inclusive relationship education. But then there's that tension there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to remember, and this is why the history of sex education is so important, that it's not just the Muslim community that are really opposed to LGBTQ rights and are really opposed to um, teaching this stuff on curriculums. Like in the case of now, uh, the media's really honed in on these protests in Parkfield. But it's happening across the country from all different communities, like from the Christian community. The Christian community have been really involved, actually, in trying to put resistance. I'm sure you found this when you were working on the curriculum changes. And they've actually been propagating for abstinence-only contraceptive teaching. And that does not Mm. receive nearly as much media attention. And it's exactly as you said, it is is profoundly Islamophobic. And there's no sense of reflexiveness about actually the role that the West and the UK in particular have played in spreading homophobia 
literally around the world. I mean, we implemented some of the first anti-sodomy laws. Mm. And today there's still huge amounts of uh, homophobia that the British government propagates, you know, in detention centres, LGBTQ plus immigrants who come, who are forced to kind of prove their sexuality. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's as exactly as you say, it's about creating this division between us and them. And yeah. it absolutely has to be challenged. I am in total agreement with you. I feel like the media outlets that were kind of really putting a focus on what was happening there had a very clear Islamophobic agenda, which fits within a wider Islamophobic and racist context that we're in politically and socially at the moment. And I would also say within that whole debate, I was glad to see some news outlets talk about LGBT and queer Muslims, of which many of my best friends are, in that debate because it served these news outlets' agendas. They kind of totally denied their existence as if it's, again, us and them, which has its historical Mm. ties to a colonialist agenda. I think there is something within not being absolute about things within education. I think what we talked about, the history of sex education and the fact that when the government sets it, it's setting a moral tone. And that's been steeped in white patriarchal Christianity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, in terms of having a stance which is like, this is the way it must be, da da da. I kind of steer clear away from that. But I think what we are trying to do in terms of the sex education changes is inclusivity and people and kids learning about the existence of people who are around them. You know, to say that that is wrong, to wipe that out, is, you know, you, you're wiping out the very existence of kids who are there. And I think that's massively harmful. And I think we see attacks on LGBT communities going up. We had something similar with the Gender Recognition Act debate, where there is a very vocal lobby of, they label themselves as feminists, and they say that they're against trans rights, and certain parts of the right-wing media are really trying to exacerbate that tension. And we as feminists were coming together and saying, not at all, like, this is intersectional feminist stands for trans rights, we're fighting the same thing. So I think, you know, the right-wing media is always going to have this ulterior motive of pitting marginalised communities against each other, and it serves their purpose. I think, you know, I guess you touched on TERFs, you know, right, trans-exclusionary, radical feminists. And I suppose there's an overlap there with sex positivity and certain elements of that, um, perhaps in terms of, like, attitudes towards sex work and so on. It'd be interesting maybe to talk a bit about some of the debates around sex positivity, attitudes to sex work, and and I guess pornography as well, that comes into it too. Yeah, I guess, like, um, so I've written about this in relation to virginity, Mm. Um, and sexual purity and the taking the history into consideration becomes important again Mm. because the case of um, you know the soldiers coming back from the first world war much of our society has been hugely sex negative for a very very long time and it said you know sex is wrong sex is bad people shouldn't do it and if they have to it's because they have to make babies (laughs) only on these days of the week only in these positions like really a lot of control (laughs) about sexuality so strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then sex positivity came out and was like, actually, you know, let's celebrate sex, let's celebrate pleasure, let's think about challenging and dismantling all of the really problematic elements of um, sex negativity. So that included embracing and championing, you know, kink communities, BDSM communities, 
porn stars, porn performers, sex workers, you know, saying that there's no one right way to have sex. But then I think I think sometimes like sex positivity can tip over a little bit into this like should. I think there's, I don't know if you agree, but I think sometimes there's like a tendency within sex positivity to say, you know, that you should be having loads of sex, you should be having loads of really kinky sex and it should be really challenging heteronormativity. But actually, you know, in the case of virginity, like there's lots and lots of young people are waiting a lot longer now to have sex and some people just don't want to have sex at all, maybe because they're asexual or for religious reasons. Yeah, so I think within sex positivity there has to also be an understanding that like not having sex is fine as much as having kinky and queer mm. and all non-heterosexual, like normative kinds of sex. Definitely. I mean, it really reminds me of the conversations I've had with a few kind of 60s, 70s feminists about that era. Mm. And my understanding from childhood was this, it was a romantic era <laughs> where people were free and easy and had a lovely time and all just <laughs> shagged each other, basically. Um but speaking to them, you see a totally different history. Actually, one which was deeply steeped in patriarchy mm. and one mm. where it was expected, you know, I'm single, you're single, then we're going to sleep together. That was mm. the expectation. There was no question of consent or whether it was something that you actively wanted to participate in. That was the expectation for young single people. And these women were saying that actually it was deeply damaging and, and actually traumatic for them this era that we think of as being about free love was actually about kind of patriarchy and men asserting their right to sleep with women. Maybe that sheds light on why young people aren't having sex as much today. And I was speaking to my family member the other day, actually, and she was very concerned. Young people are not sleeping with each other as much. I said, you know, great. Why not? Why not? I mean, I'm sure we can all look back to our sexual histories and think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe if I was more clued up, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah I think if ever the word should yeah. is in the equation, then it's like not consensual. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and cultures and communities can like foster a, a climate of should and ought. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah. Especially with the kind of history of, you know, losing one's virginity um, mm. when you should do that, you know, yeah. you get to a certain age and you haven't and it's embarrassing and uh, the kind of social pressure around that. Yeah. So I hope young people are feeling that less. <laughs> I don't know, what's your analysis? <laughs> I, I basically, what I was just kind of listening to both of your reflections then and I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone, but when we talk about sex positivity or sex workers or et cetera, et cetera, my whole thing behind it is I don't feel like I should have a right to be anyone's sexual, moral arbitrator. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in terms of sex education, I feel like it doesn't either, but it should be inclusive so that we are not omitting and setting some communities up for shame and um, kind of inner conflict. Yeah, that's where I'm at with those things. I, I remember when I started coming into the kind of feminist or domestic violence scene and then I, I was very shocked to learn about the fact that there were these kind of disagreements around sex workers because I had assumed it was a movement of inclusivity which it is mm. a lot but you know whenever anyone's like purporting to represent a community of people but they're not inclusive like for me I'm like what's your real agenda <laughs> <laughs> so wise <laughs> 
maybe this is like the wrong thing. I don't understand why people feel so threatened and challenged by debates around, not even debates, but by like being inclusive of like trans people and sex workers. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why people get so ruffled by it. I know. It's like internalised like discrimination, really. And mm. it takes conversations because it's not about shutting down conversations when people aren't in agreement with things. I think the healthy thing is that's why I think good sex education is mm. so important. Sex and relationship education is so important because I think so many of people's views, like I myself come from, even though I'm a social justice activist, you know, like a BMP voting family. And it was the fact that I didn't believe those things as a young person and sought out conversations with people to teach my brothers and sisters differently. But if if debate, for instance, was always a no, when people have disagreement, then people have got nowhere to go in their changing of views or understanding things greater. And I think it's a question of, like, what would really help is a sex education that was teaching empathy, that was teaching inclusivity, that was a kind of questioning one rather than an awkward teacher telling you about, you know, like the mechanics mm. around things. There's so much more we see in terms of that sex education experience and then what we experience in the world. And I think there's there's a lot of positive room to get it right. And I just really hope that through funding, although let's see, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, it was prioritised because it has huge impacts. Mm. We've, as we've said, it's something that is affected by the morality and politics of the society in which it's taught, sex education. And it's definitely shaped by economics as well, right? You know, and not, not just in terms of questions of funding, but then I guess neoliberalism has an impact on our attitudes towards sex and love Mm. and everything related to that too. Is there anything from the book, Natalie, that sort of leaps out along those lines? Yeah, I guess um, the porn chapter was quite a difficult one for me to write, actually, as friends of mine will be able to confirm. (laughs) I I really struggled with it because this is where, like, most young people, if we're being real, get their sex education from porn mm-hmm. I think or mm-hmm. get aspects of their sex education from porn I mean it's spoken about so much that like, in the mainstream it's lots of fear mongering and it's mm. like you know 11 year olds are blah, blah 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 all this kind of stuff but I wanted to talk about how the industry had changed and how that had affected the experience for viewers and mm. how that might be changing their conceptions of sex and what they think sex is so, yeah, I've, I've written about the proliferation of free pornography mm-hmm. um, and how that kind of completely dismantled and disrupted the whole industry. So previously where it would be these kind of big companies who'd have studios and, um, you know, I mean, it was always underground. It was always treading that line between legality and illegality. But people were paid fairly well for the work. There was a degree of um, accountability and I'm sure Lydia you know work as well it's not it wasn't a perfect I'm not saying that but with the kind of with it being broken up and with free porn coming in Mm. it's totally disrupted it and it's become kind of like a gig job really in the same way that you see much of like the other rest of the economy becoming gig work so workers will go from job to job to job Mm. often really badly paid very little job security those people that enjoy privilege other privileges in society whether it's their race or their class, they're often least affected by it, but it's the most marginalised that have struggled to find work. Um, so the whole industry has kind of been massively affected by neoliberalism and that's affected the way that porn is because it's all free and it's become all about kind of the algorithms. So mm-hmm. it's all about like the the tags you'd have or like the searchable 
um, terms, whether that's like male 14 or all other terms that you have in porn. And basically actors and performers have to then fit into those categories. Mm. So it's becoming this real kind of solidification of these like quite random categories that you have on porn. <laughs> and then workers fall between the cracks. I was reading about lots of women who are not teen looking and not MILF looking. So they're kind of just like in their late 20s or in their 20s and can't find work because the whole industry has been changed by these terms. Like you were saying, you know, you go into a classroom, people are like, oh, what's cream pie? What's the this? What's yeah. the that? And you see that those kind of terms are affecting the way that people think sex is. Normally. Yeah. Normal, you know, and it's when I, and actually like human sexuality, as we know, is hugely varied. There's huge different ways. You know, we don't sex can mean so many different things for different yeah. people. Yeah. But if this is where you're getting your sex education from, you're learning that there's very narrow ways that you should be mm. doing things and expressing yourself in that way. Yeah. Because of it becoming free, it's almost like the things that people watch, as I've spoken to my own friends in a kind of way, they find themselves, because they watch more, they watch more extreme things to kind of turn themselves on, if you see what I mean. And that then impacts like what they want with their sexual partner. That's coming from speaking to some of my guy mates about what, the, you know, what porn they watch and how it impacts their sexual relationships with their partners. And how it makes them sometimes feel kind of numb and they have to give themselves breaks really from it because then they're like, this isn't matching up to what I actually want with a person or how I want to treat them. Mm. And it hugely impacts us as like young women, I think, as well, of what we're expected to um, to give or be <laughs> or like feel or act. And, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I think... It's really interesting how you talk, Natalie, about the like conservatives' uh, new restrictions on porn and how they're targeting specifically acts that are seen as pleasurable towards like people who have vaginas or like people socialised as women, and it's like further regressing us to that point where women's sexuality and women's pleasure is just like seemingly non-existent in porn, and it really like creeps into the real world and your expectations of of what sex should be for you. And then it comes back to consent and sexual violence because it's like if you're expected to perform something yeah, mm. and you've, you know, it takes a long time for people to grow and mature and become adults and figure out what they even want. Yeah. But if you're told that you're supposed to do a certain thing, then how are you supposed to know what you want and how are you supposed to ever say no? Yeah, definitely. I had a joke with my girlfriends recently on this topic where we were like, yeah, you can just definitely tell when you're with someone who's watched too much porn. Just on the way they like act... They're acting it out. They want you to act it out. You're like, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess like Me Too started off as, it was a phrase that was introduced a while before the um, big kind of social movement, media movement, to ask vulnerable, marginalised young women to come forward with their stories of sexual violence, sexual harassment. Um, But it it became kind of massive in in the mainstream after... Big Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was accused of numerous counts of sexual violence against people that had worked for him. Basically, it was a workplace harassment complaint. The way like the, that industry works, like and all all kinds of the media, um, it's hugely hierarchical between the people at the top and the people at the bottom. Um, and those people at the bottom have very little economic security and are often very dependent upon those people at the top on their bosses to maintain their employment and even pay the bills. 
Um, and that's exactly what happened. You know, he would, when accounts came out, it'd be like, he would say, you know, I'll get you a job. I'll make you big. I can do this for you. I can do that for you. I mean, in workplaces, like, this is one of the institutions where sexual violence is rife because there's such a power imbalance mm. often between those at the top and those at the bottom. Definitely. And we see this more and more with bigger precarity in the workplace, um, everyone's struggling to get by and also struggling to make it in an industry that they might might want to. Uh, we've seen a big Me Too movement just a few months ago this year with the games industry, which started in the US with um, several women coming forward saying they'd been sexually harassed, assaulted, raped by men who had lots of power and influence in the games industry, often were a bit older, the working hours were very late, several forms of like power and coercion going on. Um, and it was a real moment of waking up in the games industry of people saying, this is happening throughout our companies and there are people who know about it and there's whispers going on constantly but nothing has been said or done before now. And it was a real kind of powerful and really uh, liberating moment but also terrifying where people all of a sudden starting to have these conversations. And I remember when Me Too started, all of a sudden I kind of, when I saw my friends, uh, even family members, and would say, me too, yeah, mm. you too, yeah, yeah, me too. Um, and it was such a powerful moment where just a tiny bit of that shame was mm. stripped back and we were able to have a space and a voice to talk about these issues. And I really hope this filters down to the next generation because mm. we never had a movement like that when we were growing up during our sex education like we said it just wasn't something we talked about consent mm. and coercion and power in relationships yeah agreed and and just to add to that i would say as well what's happening socially what's happening with solidarity with people coming together is incredible more of that more funding behind all of that you know your guys work should definitely be funded However, we're looking at the realistic situation of at the moment. We have a prime minister who's recently been accused of... Yeah, um, groping. Yeah, yeah, groping a woman in a workplace situation. Mm. And we're seeing, you know, of course, none of us can know, etc., etc. But we're seeing how power affords people in high places immunity. Mm. Exactly. We're also seeing that we have a criminal justice system, a legal system that is basically decriminalized rape and sexual assault mm. and so i would encourage everyone out there these systems need to change we need different laws um, we need different structures in place in the workplace to back this stuff up from sex education and to really encourage that when we get together we can apply enough pressure to change these things but you know those bloody world leaders who've been accused <laughs> of all of these horrific things Put them in the stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's not even a cute... Like, yeah. Trump gloats about it. Yeah. yeah. He's proud. He's proud that this is part of his history. And I think, yeah, you're totally right. Like, we need... Like, as much as I think we have to change sex education curriculum, I'm like, that has to come alongside, yeah. like, huge structural systemic transformative change yeah. of, Definitely. like, all of our cultural values and the whole way that we understand things. And I think in the workplace, like... We need more equality. Like, we need to not have people with so much power because yeah. it's power corrupts that. Like you see this time and time again that when people mm. have... And lack of accountability. A lack of accountability, yeah. And just putting people up on a pedestal. Like yeah. It's so often people who have, yeah, like you said, no accountability and free reign to basically do what they want. And we know, like, we've got this pattern enough times throughout history to know that those things equal sexual violence. We need to start by changing that. 
Definitely. It's so interesting you link it in with the far right as well. Yeah. It's been such a big factor in the games um, Me Too movement because there are these big online gaming cultures which are incredibly far right. Mm. And we've seen these women who've been speaking out facing huge online backlash from alt-right gaming cultures and you can immediately link that into our reality with Trump with Johnson with Modi with Bolsonaro um yeah it's all got to fall <laughs> yeah agreed and I think when I see the white supremacist terrorists and look into their histories there's often a history of domestic violence because if you can do domestic violence and society and the state lets you get away with it, why not take it to a bigger scale? If you feel powerful because of that and you are told by the fact that you can get away with it, that it's fine. You know, you're also allowed, I'm interested in the psychology of it because I've witnessed it firsthand with my father, is it then allows them to think that, you know, their views on society, if they don't like women, well, they don't like brown people, they don't like da-da-da-da, and they've been told they can get away with violence in one small way, and then they make that bigger, and it, you know, I think these things really play into each other, and that's why good sex education in schools and in communities, because I often believe that, like, the state is behind where we're at, if we get it right in terms of, like, the amazing work you guys are doing, that pushes everything in the right direction. Well, thanks so much to all three of you uh, for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting discussion. Once again, Natalie's excellent new book, Behind Closed Doors, is available. It came out just a couple of months ago in September. Um, you can find it on plutobooks.com and in all good bookshops as well. Mm. If you go to the website, uh, you can also find details of a number of organisations offering support around some of the issues that we've been discussing today. We'll put that up on a, a blog post. Um, and they're also listed in the back of the book as well. So do check it out. This has been another episode of Radicals in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the show, then you can, of course, leave us a review, share the links, tweet about it. And we'll be back next month talking about the life work and politics of James Baldwin. So stay tuned for that. Uh, until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.